0: This is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports about ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. Our team has plunged into the reporting phase on four education documentaries that will come out this fall. One of those projects is about students with learning disabilities. Many parents, advocates, and lawyers say kids with learning disabilities have a hard time getting what they need from public schools, even though federal law requires schools to accommodate them. There are proven techniques to help kids with learning disabilities, especially dyslexia. Parents who can afford it often choose private schools that specialize in these techniques. This week we're featuring an interview with Ben Schifrin. He's the head of the Gemesee School, a well-regarded place for children with dyslexia and other language-based disorders. APM reports senior correspondent Emily Hanford will be spending part of the next school year reporting at Gemesee, which is in a suburb of Baltimore. When she sat down with Ben Schiffrin a couple of weeks ago, she learned that he was drawn to work in the field of special education because of his own personal experience. We'll let him explain. But first, a few things you need to know. Schiffrin grew up before the federal special education law was enacted. You'll hear Emily refer to that law called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. Also, there's a reference to an IEP. That stands for Individualized Education Plan. The federal special education law requires that public schools create an IEP for every child receiving special education services. Now, here is Ben Schifrin with his story.
1: Oh, what a story. What a story. You know, I loved kindergarten. I remember that I loved playing in kindergarten. In fact, I was, I don't know if they call it president of the class, but I, I had peer friends. That was never a problem got into first grade, and life became very, very difficult. Dick and Jane were not my friends at all. I mean, they really weren't. I didn't understand how the letters came together. I couldn't write the letters down. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember making it through first grade, and the gift that I was given was a very bright memory. So my mom and I used to sit at home, and she would buy from John Wanamaker's department store bookstore, she had it mailed out, the Dick and Jane book, and we would sit together, at night, and we'd read the next story of what we were going to read in class. And I had a brilliant memory that I could memorize the words in the story, and then I would figure out who was reading what word in line, and I would be able to fool the teacher that I was reading the line. However, if the teacher went out of order or the order got mixed up, I all of a sudden had a stomach ache or a headache and got myself out of class to go to the nurse, And the most humiliating experience I will never forget was in second grade, Miss Ferguson. We took our spelling test, and second grade word, the word girl, and I reversed the I and the R. And she held up my paper in front of the entire class and said, I want to show you what a careless student does who doesn't take time to think about their work. And she used my paper, and I was humiliated. I did not want to go back to school. And my mother went to see her. And basically, she told my mother that I was a very slow learner that I would never learn to read, that please don't even have college in my forecast. And he's kind of what we call educable retarded. He'll get literate, but he'll never achieve beyond that. And my mom knew something wasn't right. And she started researching and finding and She found a tutor and it took all the way to fifth grade named Mr. Friedman. And Mr. Friedman was A great man, he taught school and taught reading, and he came to my house. And in those days, it was $15 a week. And for my parents, that was a lot of money. But education was important. My mother knew something wasn't right. And Mr. Friedman started to work with me. And immediately he stopped, and he said, Ben, you're very bright. Okay, And it was the first time a teacher believed in me that I could. And I can't tell you what an impact that has for a student, that belief. Students know when their teachers don't believe in them. Absolutely. When teachers have low expectations, kids know it. And lo and behold, I don't know whether it was the methodology he used or it was just the belief that I could, that I was willing to do whatever this man did to teach me. And within six months, I went from a second grade reading level to beyond my fifth grade where I was, I blew everybody out of the water. And it was because the systems he taught me all of a sudden made sense to my brain. And things started to snap together very quickly. It was like that aha moment. And all of a sudden my spelling got better. My writing was never a problem. I just couldn't read what I wrote. I mean, spelling in the way I would spell it. And I went on to Temple University and graduated with highest honors, summa cum laude. I mean, I really did, and it blew everybody away. In there. you see the gold on the bottom of the degree. Went on for my master's degree, and my passion has been in life that no child ever goes through school the way I did, that every child can learn. And even at Gemincy, when I spoke to you, we talk about that belief in it. Like, when I interview teachers, I'm not looking just at their knowledge base. Are they gonna believe in our kids? Do they give our kids the feeling that they can succeed? Because you really live up to those expectations. And, you know, had my mother listened to the teacher in second grade, I wouldn't be where I am today. So.
2: So you were in school and were told you couldn't learn. And then you found this tutor who had a method to use with you. And this is a method that's been around since the early 20th century.
1: That is correct. And no one in my school knew about this method. No one even understood. And in fact... What's different is when I finally, Mr. Friedman explained to me, he said he found a lot of kids like me when he was teaching reading and it fascinated him that these kids verbally were so bright, but yet were struggling with just putting syllables together and they would excel in science, they would excel in math, but, and they were brilliant as he would say. And and whenever as a head I sit and I look at a kid who's really struggling, like little Max that I showed you that's brilliant up here at his frustration level because he knows he should get it and not, you know, I look at Max and I share with him Max, I just know how you feel inside, you want to scream, right? And you want to pound a wall, but you can't give up. And you're going to do it, Max. It's just going to take and when you finally get it, you're going to get it better than any of the other kids. And what was interesting to me, that was true, I understood more about the English language than a lot of my friends who just learned to read naturally. Like I knew about syllables, I knew about spelling rules. I knew like they said to me, "How do you know to double that?" Well, didn't you know when it's a, sh- you know, it's this kind of syllable I never learned that rule.
2: Did your mother or parents go to the school and say, look, he's learning with a $15 a week tutor. You need to do more for him. Or was it just kind of given up the school's not going to give us what we need?
1: You know what? It was funny. My mom and I talked about this years back. She did go. But there was a different feeling in the early 60s that schools knew everything. You didn't challenge them. You were afraid to challenge them. So my mom said, what was I challenging them for? There were no laws at that time that I could demand they do something. So we had to take care of it.
2: What's interesting, however, is the law came in and people do challenge the system, but from many interviews now I've done with parents around here and in other states, it seems like there's still an attitude that the school knows best, and there's a lot of fighting back against parents who say, my kid has a problem and you're not dealing with it right.
1: That I would agree. And being in public ed, absolutely. I think the thing that has insulted me the most and why I left public ed was when they wanted me to say to parents, when I'd look at IEPs and say, we need oh, no, 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 we don't have to provide a Cadillac. We just have to provide a Chevy. We're not... And to me, every kid deserves a Cadillac, whether you have money or not. That's the society we live in. But I think the mentality of school districts is they don't have to be equal to private schools, OK? They don't have to provide this Cadillac model to a kid that learns differently, or we don't need to, you know, so you have brilliant dyslexic kids that even when they'll test them now won't identify them because they're on grade level, but no one's looking at, well, this kid should be, at least based on what I'm looking at and their processing speed and their sub-scores, this kid should be way above grade level. what's in the way and because we're not doing that I think we harm society I mean you look at people like Albert Einstein I mean you read about his school career was horrendous what they told him and look at that mind and we are not taking the time to cultivate those minds and you know what we're losing as a society I mean we're really losing as a society
2: now I want to go back to history a little bit because you had your experience in school there was nothing really to give you any rights in right. your school back then. Right. Then the law comes along in 1975, 1975. Right. Um, and that's a really important piece of legislation because Absolutely. suddenly. So where were you in your own? Like, when did you graduate from college? Like, where were you when that law I
1: 76. Okay, so, I, I missed it. I mean, I, I technically missed it. However, But
2: you go right into public education it, with that law in place.
1: Correct. And what it allowed was it began to do some great things. IEPs were developed. All of a sudden, we needed to look. But I'll be honest with you, IEPs became just paperwork. Okay? They weren't meaningful. The intent behind the law, and that's what I mean, the intent behind the law was absolutely incredible. And it began to schools to recognize they needed to do something. As much as the law helped, in my opinion, I think it helped the people that had money, the people that had the time, and the people willingness to sue the district. It didn't, it didn't ha- help the poor mom who was a single mom struggling to put her kid through school, was having problems and went to school. And, oh, yeah, we'll hold an IEP meeting and they feel good and sign these goals. Well, first off, they segregated the kid and put him over here. Okay. The kid began to feel dumb. Okay, Many of these classrooms in those days were put in basements. Okay, They weren't part of the whole school. I'll never forget in California, my first school I taught at, they had me all the way out in a trailer. And I finally stood up at a faculty meeting. I said, any chance we become part of the mainstream of the school and be in the main building? Oh, we don't have room. I said, well, I'll take this room that was a half-sized room because I want my kids to feel like they're high school kids and walking through the school.
2: One of the things you're saying about the IDEA law, I think, is that it provides a tool for sophisticated, able parents to get something for their kids, but it doesn't actually systematically provide much for everybody.
1: Absolutely. And I could speak from experience when I was in L.A. Unified School District. The parent that complained enough that had the attorney got the non-public school funding.
2: I'm kind of blown away when I think about it. And I don't know if anyone has tried to add this up or figure it out. um, But when you think about the money that public school systems around the country are spending on lawyers to fight parents and are spending on private school tuition. And I don't even know what other costs. What if you could add up all that money and say, let's just use that to train teachers and improve education?
1: And it would probably be a lot less. I mean, my line would be, doesn't take a lot to train teachers, okay? And remember, you've got teachers that want to. I remember Baltimore City when we began to teach these teachers, and it wasn't sitting them in a classroom. We did a general, but then we model teach of how we did it. And then they would do it, and we'd help them. And they were, first off, their love of their job increased. You couldn't even measure that. The burnout was not there because they knew what they were doing. There was a resource, okay? So this isn't brain surgery. I mean, you're talking about if you spend $40,000 per school to have an expert there, or let's say it's now 70 per school okay, to train the teachers and be there to train them and then move away because you're going to have master's at the school, this could be a three-year program.
2: Do you think that if the public schools were doing a much better job at teaching everyone, but in particular teaching kids with dyslexia and language-based reading differences, that's how you refer to it here, right, right? that a place like Jemesee would even need to exist?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what we do here is just good education. Not that I want to close my school, but the horror stories I hear of kids coming through of what's been said to them, what's been done to them, it's criminal. It's not even sad. In some states, in some parts, it's criminal what has been said to them, not understanding who they are, no one willing to listen to them, to help them. You know, when we take upper school kids in here, the difference is when we get the little ones, it's magic. I mean, they, they don't know anything's different with them. I mean, this is just jealousy and this is the way they learn. Upper school kids, it takes them a good six to seven months just to begin to trust. Because that's been killed. They've been promised, and they want to, and they're told they're lazy, they're not trying, they're bad kids, and they just don't understand they learn differently. And teachers are unwilling to bend or to work with them.
2: So you're saying that the way these kids get treated in public schools, criminal. Like, what do you mean? What's criminal?
1: Criminal that they don't teach them how to read. They don't know how to teach them how to read. They segregate them when they're capable of sitting in a history class and getting it may struggle with the reading. They put them in a self-contained class. They call it special day class. And in that special day class is every kind of exceptionality there is. What does a teacher do? That's that's almost impossible. You're giving her a child that's limited intelligence. You give another one that's a brilliant dyslexic. You give another one that's an emotionally disturbed kid. How do you make that work? What you've done is taken the problems of your school and put them over here instead of attack. You know, when
2: some ways to make it easier for the teachers and easier for the other kids, you just kind of segregate out the problem kids.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now, with the inclusion model and all of that, that's slowly changing. But what I'm bringing out is that I have a young man here who came from public school. What they told the parent about this kid, the mother cried that he would never learn sort of my story. The kid's brilliant. The kid's come to Gemasi, his whole life changed, but he had anger issues, and we had to get over it. Like, he would have a temper. And we knew, with Gemasi, we knew where that came from. Do you know, since he's been here, that temper has disappeared and dissipated because he's so brilliant. This kid could tell you any battle in the Civil War and what transpired, okay? And to think that these parents were told, and the mother started crying, this kid could never learn. I mean, that to me is criminal. First off, every child can learn. To even say that to a parent, okay, to me is criminal. I mean, this is your kid. And you have to remember, and I think this is the important point, when your child's suffering at school, it's not your child that's suffering, the whole family's suffering. It affects every minute of the family. It's not the wonderful family unit you want to be. And well, all- What do
2: you mean, what happens
1: You know, the parents worry, everyone's concerned, siblings become concerned, attention is taken away from other siblings. I mean, it really causes a family, or homework becomes a nightmare, and every night there's a commotion in the house over homework. I mean, think about that. Think about that. And like, I remember I gave you the image before the first grader going off to school. They're excited, and look what we've done to them by third grade. But what I'm bringing out is the whole family suffers when this goes on. And I guess the thing that I love the most about GEMESY and what makes it special to me is when I get that call three weeks in, what'd you do? All of a sudden, my kid's up in the morning and
0: wants to be at school. I mean, did you put something in the water? No, kids want to learn. That was Ben Schifrin, head of the GEMESY School in Maryland. He was speaking with APM senior correspondent Emily Hanford for an upcoming documentary about students with learning disabilities. We'll check in with Emily about this project later in the school year. You can visit our website, apmreports.org, for updates, and you can also browse our archive of documentaries and podcasts about education and many other topics. As a reminder, Emily will be speaking to Linda Lutton next week about Linda's new documentary, The View from Room 205, which we featured last week on the podcast. We want to hear from you. What would you like to know about Linda's reporting on education and poverty? You can send your questions to us at contact at apmreports.org. Or you could tweet us at Educate Podcast or find us on Facebook. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening.
2: This is APM.